So Judges chapter 6, and um, we're going to be reading from verse 11 to verse 24. Sounds quite echoey, Stephen, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read those verses, then I'm going to pray, and then we'll make a start. So, verse 11, Judges 6, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress, in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. Then the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire arose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it's still an offer of the Abyssalites. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you have brought us to this place. We thank you that we can worship you in spirit and truth this morning. 
we thank you that we are free to gather together as your people. We thank you that you have given us your word. Your word which is sharper than a double-edged sword and is able to cut between spirit and soul and to change us from the inside out. We thank you that, Lord, we can turn back to examples like Gideon and we can see your work in his life and how that reflects your work in our lives. And so as we get into this passage this morning, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, speak to the situations that we face in life every day, and help us to know you more, help us to love you more, and help us to share you more. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit to fulfill this task this morning. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Everyone says amen. Amen. You know, I, I think that Gideon is one of the most well-known characters in the Bible, but he's also one of the least well-known characters in the Bible. Um, I've had many conversations over the years as a Christian, and the subject is Gideon. And the conversation will go something like this. I'll say, how are you doing, brother? And my brother will say, yeah, I'm doing fine. You know, I've had a good week. I feel like the Lord is calling me to do something. And I'll be like, oh, that's, that's good. And he, my brother will say something like, yeah, I'm just putting out a few fleeces, you know, like Gideon did looking to see if the Lord's going to confirm what he wants me to do. Has anyone had that kind of conversation? It's a very, very common conversation in Christian circles. But this man, Gideon, he was a man who led the people of Israel at a time that's documented for us here in the book of Judges. He was a man that led with people like Deborah, Barak, Samson, well-known people in the scriptures. And he led at a time that was very, very difficult in the history of the nation of Israel. If there's a verse in this book that sums up what was going on at that time, it's actually the last verse of the book. In Judges 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This was the spiritual condition of that time. It was a very self-centered, self-focused, self-exalting time. People didn't care about other people's issues. All they cared about was themselves. It was a me, myself, and I culture. It must have been very, very difficult for leaders at that time to lead the people of Israel because they were very stubborn, very selfish people. And this spiritual condition of the people had cultural consequences. When you read the book of Judges, you see time after time this cycle. What will happen is that 
the people will reject God. They will go after idols like Baal or Ashtaroth poles. And God will get angry at the people of Israel and he will judge them and raise up leaders or nations to oppress them. And then the people of Israel will cry out to God. God will relent and he will raise up someone to save them. And this is exactly what happened just before Gideon. Deborah and um, Barak had, had some great successes in leading the people of Israel. They'd had some great victories. There was a time of peace uh, in the nation, time of prosperity. And of course, what did they do? They turned away from God. They went to idols, to Baals and Ashtaroth poles, and God got angry with them again. And he got so angry with them that he raised up the Midianites, which we read about in the first part of chapter 6. And what the Midianites would do is every year when harvest was about to happen, they would come with their families and all their livestock and they would go into the nation of Israel and they would basically take over. They would destroy all of Israel's crops so that the people of Israel would be left to starve. I mean, can you imagine having that happen to you? What sort of crazy kind of environment would that be to live in? You know, you've grown all these crops for your family and then these people come in and they just completely and utterly destroy it. And this went on for seven years, seven harvests. And of course, as we know in the cycle of Judges, the people began to cry out again to God and God begins to raise up a new leader. And that man is going to be Gideon. And so today, in our message, what we're going to see, if you look in your um, handouts, we're going to see how God calls Gideon. How he calls him to himself. Calling is really just very simply someone calling someone over to have a conversation. It's like if someone's, you know, over there in the corner and I shout out, hey, come over here, let's have a conversation, let's get to know each other. That's what a calling is. And we're going to learn how God called Gideon today and how that reflects God's call to humanity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to see four sections. The first section is in verse 11 to 12 where we're going to see that God's calling requires God to turn up in grace. Second section is verse 13 to verse 16, where we see that God's calling is not about us, it's about him. The third section is in verse 17 to 22, where we see that God's calling leads to saving faith. And then the fourth section is in verses 23 and 24, where we see that God's calling leads to peace. So let's read... Verse 11 again. It says there, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abysiorite, while his son Gideon freshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So this verse is really an introduction to the two people that are going to be in this conversation. The first person is this person called the angel of the Lord. Now in Hebrew, this is pronounced 
Maulak Jehovah, which means messenger of God. And it's very important that we know who this angel of the Lord is. Because when you see this term angel of the Lord in scriptures, it is often referring to God in the first person. There's a couple of examples up on the slides that I just want to show you. In um, Genesis 16, verse 13, when um, Hagar is running away from Abraham and Sarah, the angel of the Lord comes to her, and she says this, in verse 13, she says, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, I have also here seen him who sees me. And then a second example of the angel of the Lord is in Genesis 22, where it says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, and the word there is Jehovah. So the Bible makes it very clear, brothers and sisters, that this angel of the Lord is God. It is a physical representation of God in the Old Testament. Some theologians debate amongst themselves about whether this is Jesus, an Old Testament physical appearance of Jesus, or whether it's just the Trinity turning up uh, to people. I don't think that really matters which one it is, but the key here is that this person, the angel of the Lord, is God. God is this person in our conversation. And he sits under this terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah. And if you look at the examples of um, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, he often sits under a terebinth tree. I, I don't think there's any spiritual significance to that. I just think he likes the terebinth tree. So he's there. He sits under this tree. And then we get introduced to this second person called Gideon. And he's the son of Joash, the Abyssalite. And Gideon's threshing wheat in the wine press. And it tells us that he's doing that to hide it from the Midianites. Now you have to notice here that what Gideon is doing is odd. Because when farmers thresh wheat, what they do is they do it outside on a circular stone area where they put all their wheat in this area and the oxen comes along and he stamps on the wheat and then it's supposed to be outside so the wind blows up all the chaff and you're left with the good crop. But here we're told that Gideon's threshing wheat in the wine press and the wine press, listen, was underground. It was cut out of stone and it was, it was basically in the dark. And he's doing it on his own. He's not using an oxen. He's there in the dark, on his own, and he's doing this in fear because he's fearful that the Midianites are going to take his crop and that he's going to be starving to death. Now, these two characters, I believe, represent a bigger picture, and I believe the Spirit wants us to see this as we go through this text. These two characters, the angel of the Lord and Gideon, reflect the contrast between God and sinful humanity. Of course, the angel of the Lord is God, we know that, but he's outside, he's in the light, 
a representation of his holiness and his purity. And then you have Gideon, who's on his own. He's imprisoned. He's in darkness. That's a reflection of sinful humanity. Sinful humanity is said to be in the kingdom of darkness. Sinful humanity is said to be imprisoned in slavery to the fear of death. And of course, in the beginning, when Adam sinned, what did he do? He hid from God. So these two characters reflect that contrast. And it's important for us to see that because it's going to show us that as we see God calling Gideon, it's a picture of how God calls humanity. So he goes on in verse 12, and it says there, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. So the angel of the Lord goes to Gideon, and he declares over Gideon an identity that is linked to God being with him. He says, I am with you. You are a mighty man of valor. Now this was not Gideon's, it wasn't his experience, was it? He was not a mighty man of valor at this time. He was a fearful man, in the dark, imprisoned. But in God's plan, and in God's heart, he was a mighty man of valor. Now, it's very important for us to see, brothers and sisters, that there is nothing in Gideon that has warranted God to turn up in his life. Nothing. Gideon was just like the other Israelites. He had turned away from God. He was an idol worshipper. And even though in verse 7 of Judges 6, it says that the children of Israel cried out to the Lord... That is not a crying out to the Lord in repentance. It's saying, help us, please, we need to be rescued. It's not, help us, God, we have sinned. So he doesn't deserve God to turn up, but God turns up anyway in his grace. And he declares over Gideon the truth that he needs to hear at that time for him to come back to God. Now, it's very important for us to see that like Gideon, we as human beings, both corporately and individually, don't seek after God. I'm just going to repeat that again. Sinful humanity does not seek after God. In Romans 3 verse 11, it says this, There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. At least not on God's terms. And of course, because of that, like Gideon, humanity needs God to turn up in grace. And that's, of course, what he did in Jesus. Jesus left heaven, left his throne. He came to the earth as a human being. He grew up into a man. He lived the perfect life. And he declared to humanity... I am with you. I am Emmanuel. You are sinful. You need to hear what I have to say and be saved. 
but also as individuals. We don't seek after God. None of us do. In John 6, verse 44, it says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. As sinful human beings, we cannot initiate the relationship with God. It is God who has to initiate relationship with us. He has to turn up in our lives in grace and in mercy. That is why if you're in here today or you're listening to this message and you don't yet know God, you don't yet see Jesus as your personal saviour, I would warn you against listening to anyone in the church or outside the church that says to you that you can get to God yourself. That you can do something to appease God and make yourself right with him. You cannot. God has to draw you. God has to bring you back to himself. And so we see in this first section, brothers and sisters, that for God to call Gideon, he has to turn up in Gideon's life in grace, and that is the same for us. God has to turn up in our lives in grace. Make no mistake about it. There is nothing in you, sorry to be offensive, but there's nothing in you that warrants God to turn up in your life. Nothing. It is only in his grace that he turns up. So then in verse 13, we go on to our second section, where it says, Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Now, I want you to notice something very important in this verse. Can you see that when Gideon addresses the angel of the Lord, he uses, well, the writer uses a small l. Okay, that means that at this time, Gideon does not know who this person is. He doesn't see this angel of the Lord to be God. But then he acknowledges that he knows stuff about God because he mentions the word Lord there with a capital L. So we see here that Gideon knows about God, but he doesn't personally know him. How is that doing for him? Well, it's not doing very good, is it? Because Gideon's hiding. He's in the dark. He is imprisoned. And you need to know this, that there are many people in the church who know stuff about God, but they don't know him personally. They might know loads of doctrine, they might know loads of stuff about end times, whatever, but they don't know God personally. They don't have a personal relationship with him. And that is such a sorry and sad place to be because like Gideon, they're still imprisoned in darkness. They're still imprisoned in their sin. I would warn you against that, brother and sister, whoever it may be, You may know lots about God, but do you know him personally? Do you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sin? Do you trust Jesus, that he's died for every sin in your life? Are you following after him as Lord? Don't fall into the trap of knowing lots about God, but not knowing him personally. He goes on, and he says there... um, And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us 
and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So the rest of this verse, Gideon's wrestling with this knowledge that he has. He knows that God is a God of covenant. He knows that God is a God who saved Israel. He knows that God is a God of miracles. He knows that God is a God who uh, blesses obedience and in the Old Testament uh, covenant, curses disobedience. And so he's saying, how can God be with us when these things have happened to us? Can't be. God's not with us. He's forsaken us. He's given us over to the Midianites. He, can, he cannot be with us. And then the Lord, in verse 14, turns to him and says this, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. I want you to notice in that verse the word might of yours. Where it speaks of might there, it's talking about strength. It's talking about um, power. And so it's, the Lord is acknowledging that Gideon's got some kind of might. Well, what is this might? It's certainly not the fact that Gideon has knowledge, because it says in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And we've already said that you can know stuff about God, but not be saved. What Gideon's might here is not the fact that he has knowledge, it's the fact of who he knows about. It's the reality that God is the God of power. God is the God of strength. God is the God of covenant and promise and love. That is Gideon's might. It's God's character. And how he displays that character that's going to lead to Gideon delivering Israel out of the hand of the Midianites. Brother and sister, I just want to say to you this morning that the only strength that you have in your life is God. Your um, personality, your money, your job, your, I don't know, your upbringing, your culture, your um, whatever it may be, that's nothing when it comes to the reality that God is the only strength that you have in your life. Moses and David knew this reality. In Exodus uh, chapter 15, verse 2, it says, when they'd just been uh, delivered from the Egyptians in the Red Sea, it says, the Lord is my strength and my song. This is Moses singing of God's strength after he's been delivered. And then in the Psalms, David, who is often in very, very difficult circumstances, says in Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. These men knew that God was their strength because they saw the character of God being played out in their lives and they saw God's strength deliver them. And this is the same for you, brothers and sisters. This same God that was strong in Moses' life and David's life is the same today. And this is why it is so silly when we as Christians forsake this strength. When we turn to other things of the world to try and get help and get strength. I know for me, 
when I'm at work and I've got hundreds of tasks to deal with, I've got blood tests coming out my ears, I've got letters that are just overflowing, I have to confess, do I turn to God for his strength that time? No, I don't. I turn to things like YouTube or, I don't know, Instagram or the latest football news or the, you know, latest research on Bigfoot in Britain or whatever. <laughs> that's, what I, it's, it's bad, but that's what I do. And I feel horrible about that because, the, because God says, no, don't do that, don't turn to those things, turn to me, turn to my strength in those times. And I wonder if there's anything in your life that grabs a hold of your attention when you are struggling. Don't turn to that, turn to God. He goes on in verse 14 and he says to uh, Gideon, have I not sent you? And then Gideon says to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And then verse 16, And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So Gideon sort of responds to this by saying, God, how can you send me? I come from a very... Um, bad family, or I come from a family that's not very well known. I'm very weak. Why would you send me? Don't send. I, I can't be sent. Not me. Sounds familiar to Moses when he was called by God at the burning bush. But God responds to Gideon and says, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So here we have, brothers and sisters, another principle of the kingdom of God. And that is a very upside-down principle that it is in weakness in our lives that God shows his strength. In the kingdom of the world, strength is uh, defined by power, by uh, money, by um, often abuse. But in God's kingdom, strength is often seen in weakness. We see this very clearly in Paul's life uh, in 2 Corinthians verses, chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. It says this, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a fawn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In Paul's life, as in Gideon's life, there was weakness. Paul's weakness was this thorn in the flesh that he was given and it was such an issue for him that he pleaded with the Lord three times, please take it away, Lord, please take it away. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And you see that in Paul's life. There's weakness all the time. He's, 
Everywhere he goes, there's weakness, weakness, weakness. But his ministry is so powerful and is so fruitful because God's strength was shown in his weakness. And this is the same with Gideon. Gideon is acknowledging in these verses, Lord, I'm weak. I don't have the strength. I don't have the power to do this. And God says, good. That's why you're ready and that's why I'm going to use you to deliver the Israelites. Because because of that, my strength will be shown. Brother and sister in the Lord, I would encourage you today, don't disregard your weakness. Don't ignore the things in your life that you feel weak about, that you struggle with. It's so easy for us in our pride to not confess to one another where we struggle or where, we, where we're weak. But I would say to you, if you do that, if you keep your weakness to yourself, if you don't, yeah, if you don't be real with people in the church, you're going to forfeit God's power in your life. You're going to not see God's power and strength in your life as much as you could if you were open and honest about your weakness. We all have weaknesses. We all mess up all the time. We all carry burdens in our lives that we would rather not carry. But you see, God in his grace takes those things and he uses those things to show his strength, to show that it's not about us. It's about him. And in these verses here, in this second section, we've seen very clearly that God's calling of Gideon is not about Gideon. It's about God. It's about God's character, God's power, God's strength being shown, not our own. So we go on to our third section. And this is where we see that this call of Gideon leads to saving faith. So, it says there in verse 17, Then he said to him, or Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that this is you who talk with me. Now I want you to notice something very important here in verse 17. You see I said earlier on that Gideon addressed the angel of the Lord with a small l. Can you see here? that he's now beginning to address him with capitalized letters, which means that Gideon has gone or is on a process from not knowing the angel of the Lord to beginning to know him. But you need to see that he still is not there yet because he says, look, if I found favor in your sight or if I found grace in your sight, please can you show me a sign so he's not, completely, he's not completely there yet. And he says to the angel of the Lord, do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And the angel of the Lord said, I will wait until you come back. And I just want to stop there for a minute. This is an incredible statement. I will wait until you come back. This is amazing. This is incredible. This is 
just mind-boggling. You've got the Israelites who've rejected God. You've, they're worshipping idols. You've got Gideon who's hiding away. He's in the dark. He's trying to, he's, he's living in fear. God's come to him in grace and is calling him back, but he's still got doubt. And he says, just wait here. I'm, I'm going to come back. And God says to him, I will wait. This is amazing. This is incredible. This is showing God's patience. It's showing the reality that God so wants Gideon to know him that he will wait. Amazing. A couple of verses that show this part of God's characters in the Psalms. In Psalm 103, verse 8, it says... The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. The Lord is gracious in Psalm 145 verse 8 and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. If you're in here today and you don't know God yet, you don't know Jesus as your personal saviour, you're checking things out. Maybe you're beginning to see that Jesus is who he says he is, but you're still not there yet. You need to know, whoever you are, God will wait for you. God wants you to know him. He will wait. He is so patient with you. He is so compassionate with you. He is so merciful to you that he will wait. And for us as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we have doubts as well. We have doubts about things. You know, you may have been a Christian for years and years and years and you go through a season where you think, is this really true? Am I really on the right path here? You need to know as well that God will wait for you in that time. He will wait for you to come back to him because he loves you. God is truly a gracious and merciful God. So in verse 19, he goes on and he says that Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephra of flour. Then he put in a basket, he put the meat in the basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. So Gideon said, please wait for me, and he goes into wherever his place was, and he begins to prepare this young goat and unleavened bread. And this is important, because what Gideon is doing here is he has in his mind Leviticus chapter 1 and Leviticus chapter 6, because he's, he's preparing a young goat to be a burnt offering, a sacrifice to appease for his sin. And this other uh, ephra of flour, or unleavened bread, is from Leviticus 6. That is again talking about a burnt offering or a grain offering that we will be brought to the Lord to appease for his sin. So we can see from this that the sign that Gideon wants is to know that he's going to be forgiven. He, he, he is thinking, if this is truly the God of Israel, if this is truly the God of grace then he will forgive me. If I bring this offering to him, he will forgive me. And so he takes it out 
And the angel of the Lord says to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Verse 21, it says, Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. So, Let's explain what's going on here. So Gideon brings out his offering. He lays it before the angel of the Lord. And there's somebody missing. The, the person that's missing is a Levitical priest. Because in the Old Testament law, a Levitical priest would have to take the blood of the sacrifice, the meat of the sacrifice. He'd have to take the unleavened bread and he'd have to go and take it up to the altar put it on the altar and then it would be burnt before God as a burnt offering that would be a sweet aroma to the Lord. That's how the sacrifices would take place. But of course, there's no Levitical priest here. The Levitical priest is not present. Why? Because the Levitical priesthood has fallen into the sin that Israel has fallen into and therefore it's not functioning anymore. People can't bring sacrifices to atone for their sin because the Levitical priests are not there. And what this shows us is it shows us how uh, inferior and how unfruitful, in a way, the Levitical priesthood was because it was carried out by sinful men. It was administered by sinful people. So when those people fell into sin, they would neglect their uh, duties. And so people would not be able to bring their sacrifices and feel like their sins had been atoned for under that old covenant. But of course, what happens? The angel of the Lord takes his staff and he brings forth the sacrifice. He brings forth the burning up of the meat and the unleavened bread, showing us that God provided the means for his sacrifice to be made. And of course, this is a picture, brothers and sisters, of how the Old Testament Levitical priesthood would be replaced by Jesus. Jesus, when he came, came to the earth. He went to the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed. He rose from the dead on the third day. He went up into the heavenly tabernacle with his perfect blood to present it before the Father continuously so that our sins could not only be atoned for, but be washed away. So that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far Jesus removes our sin from us. Hallelujah. And this is a picture of that in this story. And Gideon was overwhelmed by this. He was like, wow, my sacrifices have been dealt with by this angel of the Lord. My sin is forgiven. And he then perceives that this person before him is God. He perceives that this is the angel of the Lord. And so Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So Gideon's been on a bit of a journey. He's gone, he's gone from being underground, alone, 
in the dark, oppressed, imprisoned. God has called him in his grace. He's had doubts, but he's seen that he needs to be forgiven of sin. He's had his sacrifice dealt with, and now he has come to know God. He has saving faith. He sees God for who he truly is. And so this shows us that this calling of God, brothers and sisters, leads to saving faith. Now, I need to just bring a bit of uh, explanation to this about calling and about how that leads to saving faith. Because in the Bible, there are two types of calling. There are, there's, there is the external calling of God, which is where God calls the whole of humanity to come back to himself. So in the Old Testament, that was uh, done through the nation of Israel. And of course, in the New Testament, it's done through the preaching of the gospel. That's the external call of God. And of course, we know down history that not everyone who hears the message of God, either through the nation of Israel or through gospel preaching, responds to it. So the external call of God is not always, it doesn't always lead to saving faith. But there's another call of God, and that is the internal call of God. That is when God grabs a hold of someone's heart, as we said earlier on, he draws people to himself. And I would say that that calling, when someone is called by God like that, it always leads to faith. It always leads to saving faith. And there is a verse that I believe proves that in Romans 8 verse 30, which says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This, is called, this verse is called the golden chain of redemption. But it's very important that we see what is being said here because it's saying that God has elected people and that those whom he elects, he calls. And those whom he called are justified. Just focus on that for a minute. This means that God's calling is always 100% successful because those whom he calls, he justifies and those whom he justifies, he then goes on to glorify so I believe, people would disagree with me on this, but I believe that when someone is truly called of God, when they experience the internal call of God, it will always lead to saving faith. And I believe that this example of Gideon here is a, is a picture of that in the Old Testament. So lastly, our last section in verses um, 23 and 24, I'm just going to read those. It says, Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it's still an offerer of the Abysiorites. So having received saving faith, God then says to Gideon, Peace be with you. And the Hebrew word for peace there is shalom. This idea of complete and utter um, tranquility, complete and utter um, everything's okay, there's no problems or issues in the heart, you have shalom, you have peace. And he says, peace be with you, I'm giving you peace. And he then says to him, 
do not fear, you shall not die. And this is really important because it's saying that Gideon's going to go into some things that he's going to be tempted to, to fear again. He's going to be tempted to go back to the way he was when he was in that wine press. But he says that even though that's the case, you still have peace. My peace is with you. Do not fear, you're not going to die. Now, I don't know about you, but in a world that is so much in turmoil, in a church that is in such turmoil sometimes, um, in a general sense, this kind of peace, this kind of idea of everything in our hearts and souls being okay, being where they need to be, being right, this is kind of what we need. This is what the church needs more of. This is what the world needs more of. And the wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, is that as Christians, like Gideon, when, we, when we're saved and we come to know him, we are given this peace. We are given this shalom. I'm going to read a few verses to you to show that. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what this means? It means that when you come to know God, you're no longer an enemy of God. You have peace with him. You're his friend. How did Jesus get this for us? Well, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. It's Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his blood being shed alone that gives us peace with God. Know this, there is only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one way that you cannot be an enemy of God anymore, and that's through Jesus' blood. Your sin makes you an enemy of God, but Jesus' blood can make you a friend of God. But it goes on. There's even more to it than that. In John 14, verse 27, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let your, let your heart not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Listen, this is very important. Not only do we get peace with God in the sense that we're his friend, but we also get Jesus' peace that he had with his father when he was on, his earth, on the earth. When Jesus was alive, he would always go on about his relationship with his father and the reality that there was a peace in that relationship. There was a joy, there was this peaceful joy that he would experience. And because of that, he was able to do everything that he was called to do. You have that, brothers and sisters. Jesus has given you that peace. You have that same peace with the Father in relationship as Jesus did. Don't let it go. And then lastly, Jesus is our peace in a different way. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, speaking of Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So not only do we get peace with God that he's not our enemy anymore, 
we not only get the peace of an experience of the peace that Jesus had with the Father, but we get to be at peace with people that are different to us in the church. Whoever's before me, whether they're from this country, whether they're from the other side of the world, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, whether they're, I don't know, whether they're educated, whether they haven't had an education, whether they're Jew, whether Gentile, Jesus creates peace between people. The only way that this world will have any kind of peace between people groups is not through peace treaties. It's not through, you know, diplomacy. It is only through Jesus. He brings peace. And then we see lastly in that last verse, what does Gideon do? After being told that he's been given peace, he creates this altar or he builds this altar which would have been just really a, a, a pile of stones. And he calls that place the Lord is peace. And Gideon in this last verse is responding to being given peace by creating something where he will remember that peace. He will remember the reality that he has met with God, that God's called him back to himself. And he calls it, the Lord is peace. And I believe that this last verse tells us something about how we as Christians can continue in the peace that we've been given. One of the things that saddens me so much about the church, and I include myself in this, is how little peace we look like we've got. We seem so stressed, so on edge, so quick to being annoyed and frustrated. But we're not called to that. We're called to have peace. Jesus has given us peace. And he wants us to live in it. He wants us to walk in it. And you don't experience that peace by going to some other church that looks like they've got it all right. Or by, I don't know, listening to a certain preacher or pastor. You do it, listen, by remembering what God's done for you, very simply, in the gospel every day. It's a very, it seems like a very mundane thing to do, but it's something that will have such a profound impact on your life. It's what we would call gospeling yourself. It's remembering each day what Jesus has done for you, that he left heaven for you, that he allowed himself to be born in a stable around mucky animals for you, that he lived and fulfilled the law for you, that he went to that cross, having been beaten and put to shame and accused falsely for you, that on the cross he suffered imaginably more than we could ever imagine. He was forsaken of the Father for you, for your sin. He allowed his 
legs to be broken. He allowed his blood to be shed for you so that your sin could be forgiven, could be washed away. He rose again from the dead on the third day for you so that your sin could be defeated forever. He reigns in heaven now for and, yeah, for you. This is what you need to remind yourself of each day. Because if you are not doing that, you won't have peace. If you are looking in other directions for peace in the body of Christ, it's not going to work. The only thing that's going to give you peace, brother, sister, is remembering what God's done for you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the example, Lord, of Gideon. We thank you for the reality that you're a God of grace and love and that you call people back to yourself. I thank you that you are a God who is patient with us. You're merciful. You so desire each one of us to know you and to relate to you. And I pray that as we go away from this place today, we will be encouraged by your character, by your grace. I pray that if there's anyone in this place that doesn't know you yet, Lord, I thank you that they're, the fact that they're here is confirmation, Lord, that you are doing something in their life, that you are drawing them back to yourself, I believe. And so I pray for these people that you would bring forth within their hearts that conviction of sin, that conviction of their need for you, that they would turn and believe and have eternal life. And for us as believers, I pray that we would know that we have such a peace in Jesus, that we have such a, 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 a wonderful experience of peace that we often neglect and help us, Lord, to not do that. Help us to gospel ourselves each day and receive the peace that you so want us to live in, Lord. And so I just thank you for that, Lord, and pray for that now in Jesus' name. Amen.